So you remember last time they took out Ai, which is in the saddle of Benjamin, and then they went north up to Shechem to renew the covenant. And as I said last time, that incident feels to me like it's out of chronological order. And the Bible does that all the time. One of the things that Scripture does, especially in the Torah, is it will juxtapose two vignettes in order to make a point. For example, you have Judah and Tamar in Genesis, and that's juxtaposed with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So the two stories are side by side, even though I doubt that they happened sequentially. God wrote them that way in order to teach us something where you would see two men in the same situation and how each one of them handled it and what then flowed from those decisions. So the idea that Israel has come into the land, they've made their first attack up in the saddle of Benjamin, they've taken out Ai, and the idea that topically the next thing you might want to do is renew the covenant, even though chronologically it might have happened later. Because we'll see in a minute the Gibeonites come and meet them at Gilgal, so they're still camped down at Gilgal during chapter 9 and chapter 10, as opposed to having moved up onto the ridge. And if they were capable of moving from Ai up to Shechem to renew the covenant, then they certainly would have been capable of having a presence remain up on the ridge. So do that whatever you like. It just feels to me out of sequence, but it may not be. So now we're in chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So you have an invader coming into the land, in this case Israel, and everybody sees that they are capable of taking out Jericho, which is a major city, and they've established a foothold up in the saddle of Benjamin. So at that point, it becomes really important for the inhabitants of the land to get together and try and throw these people out. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbling. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and to orient you on the map, you have Dead Sea at the bottom right of the map, Jericho up on the plain of the Jordan here, and then Gilgal, it's got a question mark on it. That's what everybody's best guess as to where Gilgal was is slightly north and slightly east of Jericho, at least according to this map. Then here up at the top of this section of the map, you have Ai and Bethel on the central ridge that runs north and south. And Gibeon, you'll notice you have a major route that comes from Jericho up this Wadian ridge to Gibeon, and then down through Beth Haran and to the plain. So Gibeon is a major 
hub for cross-compartment tra traffic. When I say cross-compartment, what I mean is you have the river valley running north and south, and you have the coastal plain running north and south, and then you have the mountain range in between them. So when you're moving cross-compartments, you're moving from the riverbed over to the coastal plain. Those are two different terrain compartments. So anyway, as we said a couple of weeks ago, the saddle of Benjamin, which is north of Jerusalem and south of Shechem up here, and that's where most of your cross-compartment traffic goes. And so when Israel takes Ai, that means that everybody in the land recognizes that they're now an existential threat. Because sitting in the saddle of Benjamin here, you control the north-south ridge route, which runs along the tops of the hills, Hebron, Jerusalem, Shechem, and, and all the way up to the plain of Disraelon. And you also then control cross-compartment movement from the Jordan River to the uh, plain. So at that point, the inhabitants recognize that Israel is sitting on top of a strategic key to the land, and that's their motivation for getting together and trying to throw them out. Notice that Gibeon is sitting right astride the saddle of Benjamin. And it'll say in a minute that they are a major city. So not being foolish, the Gibeonites recognize what's about to happen, and they come up with a deception plan and by the way, for those of you who have been in the military, for every major military operation that was a part of the operation order, which is the deception plan. In other words, every time you plan a military operation, you also have, what are we going to do to fool them so that they don't recognize what it is we're about to do until it's too late for them to react. And what's happening here is the Gibeonites are going to engage in some deception to avoid being destroyed by the Israelites. So they've got all their worn out duds on and all of their dry and crumbly bread. So now we're all the way down to uh, 9.6. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So notice where they go. They don't go over here to Ai which is the last place that Israel took out, they go back here to Gilgal, which is, again, sort of why I think that the renewal of the covenant may be out of sequence. Verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbling. These wineskins 
were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel of the Lord. So verse 14, did not ask counsel of the Lord. So the idea is the Gibeonites have sold them, obviously, a bill of goods, and they bought the deception. And instead of turning around and asking God what they should do, they just sort of make a decision. And by the way, this is the second time that's happened. The first time it happened was when they sent up scouts to Ai and they looked at the place and said, ah, this is no big deal. Send up two, three thousand men, you'll police them up and we'll be done. And they didn't take counsel of the Lord. They simply made that decision on their own. And of course, because of that, they didn't realize that there was a problem with Achan and just having taken some of the loot from Jericho. So they now have two instances where they have just said, ah, this looks good, we'll do that. And in both cases, it does not turn out well. 9.15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. In other words, oh shoot, because remember the instructions from God are you don't let any of them live among you because if you do, they will be thorns in your flesh. Now, we're going to see Gibeon again. What's going to happen is the Gibeonites, as you'll see in just a minute, are going to be made servants of Israel, drawers of water, hewers of wood. In other words, we're not going to kill you, but we're going to put you under servitude for the rest of your lives. What happens under Saul is Saul gets a wild hair and wipes out the Gibeonites. And God gets really chapped with Israel. Second Samuel 21, 1 and 2. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So once they've made this covenant, God holds them to it. And when Saul kills the Gibeonites, and of course David here in 2 Samuel discovers what the problem is with a drought for three years, what David will then do is he will go and get Saul's remaining descendants and hang them in order to clear the guilt for killing the Gibeonites. Let's pick it up at 9.16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Parapeth, Beroth, and Kirith Yarab. So these cities are on the western slope of the saddle of Benjamin. So the fact that all of these cities have now made a covenant with Israel pretty much gives Israel control of the saddle of Benjamin without having to fight for it. Verse 18, But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, then all the congregation murmured against their leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. So 
everybody is saying to their leaders, what do you got, cornflakes for brains? God told you not to do that. Sort of like when Israel was on the other side of the Jordan and they went to war, one of the things they did is they took the women and children as slaves. So the Midianite women had seduced Israel, and so they're bringing them back into the camp. And Moses says, what do you got, cornflakes for brains? So now what's happened is the leaders have made a covenant with the Gibeonites, and the people have said, what? We're, we're supposed to destroy all these folks. What are you doing? So that's what's going on. So 920. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. In other words, I can't kill you, but I can certainly curse you. 24. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and, and did this thing. So they recognized that being servants to Israel in perpetuity was a better deal than being corpses in perpetuity. So they chose that route. Chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, which means the Lord is righteous, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. And, oh, by the way, in parentheses, it's also strategically the key place in the land. And the reason it's a big city is because of its strategic location. It sits astride the cross of two trade routes. You've got the trade route that goes from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, and you've got the trade route that comes up the Central Ridge, and they both cross in that area around Gibeon. So it is perfectly natural that Gibeon would be a major city because they are profiting from all of that trade. The other point I wanted to mention, Adonai Zedek, in Hebrew is Adonai is Lord, and Zadok is righteous. You remember at the time of Abraham, when Abraham has his little military operation after Lot gets captured by the kings that come over from the plain of Shinar. And at the end of that process, he meets with Melchizedek, and that's Melech Zadok, the king is righteous, who was the king of Jerusalem. Now, what's happened to Jerusalem between then and now, I have no idea. Because at the time of Abraham, Melchizedek, is a priest of God Most High, and furthermore, the Jews believe that he was Shem. Because remember, Shem outlives Abraham. 
And so the rabbis say that Melchizedek was Shem. Now, Christians like me think Melchizedek was Yeshua because you have this riff on Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews and Psalm 110. Adonai Melchizedek, and so I'm thinking Adonajedek is a title and not a name, and Melchizedek may also be a title and not a name. But it appears that Jerusalem has gone downhill since those days. Something has happened in Jerusalem. It's been a long time since the time of Abraham. It's a Jebusite city because when David conquers it and Jebusites are in the land, they are one of the peoples that God says to get out of here. Jerusalem does not get taken until the time of David. And then it's a Jebusite city. Verse 3. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Pilum, king of Yarmouth, and Jahia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gideon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war on it. So now we've got Amorites. One of the things about names is Jebusites can be Amorites, and it just depends on the patrimony, and I haven't looked that up. But basically, these are the cities down here, Kish, Eglon, Hebron, Yarmouth, and Jerusalem. So these five kings are going to concentrate and come up here and besiege Gibeon, again, because they cannot allow Israel to retain the saddle of Benjamin. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is, again, one of the reasons why I think the renewal of the covenant is put where it is for topical purposes and perhaps not for chronological purposes because everybody is down here at Gilgal. He doesn't draw anybody from Ai. He doesn't draw anybody from Shechem, any of those places. They're all down in Gilgal, which indicates to me that perhaps the rededication is topically where it is, but not chronologically. Chapter 10, verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Right. The kings of the Amorites are coming up from the south. They're concentrating in the saddle of Benjamin against Gibeon. Joshua comes up from Gilgal, and you can see there's a scale here. This is about 15, maybe 20 miles. Now, having done this professionally for a good number of years, 20 miles a day is moving as an army. 
And you got all your stuff to fight with. You got your all your supplies, your bedroll, and all that kind of stuff. So you're carrying somewhere on the order of 50 to 60 pounds of stuff on your back. 20 miles a day is a good march. And you're going 20 miles here, and you're gaining a couple of thousand feet in altitude. So this is not just a flat ground 20 mile march. At the end of that, you really would prefer not to go immediately into battle. You would prefer to stop, give everybody some rest, let them get some food, and then go into battle after you've done that. The idea of a march like that and then immediately you attack is very difficult. In addition to which, as we see, he's going to strike them and they're going to go down the ridge that runs from Gibeon through Beth Haran and then out into the Mediterranean plain. By the way, there is a paved road there today, the same route. On this map, you see this little trail here that goes directly east from Jerusalem? That's Israeli Route 1. I don't remember what the number of this road is that goes through Gibeon and Beth Haran, but it is a major paved road in Israel to this day. You go to the map of Israel and you can see it. And this loop that goes around on the map, starting at Gibeon, going through Beth Haran, and then starts to loop south, Akita is also a paved road today. Verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, I have heard teachings on this that say that it was an ad hoc meteor shower and they were actual rocks. But they are described, at least in the English translation here, as both as stones and then hailstones. I don't know what God did. I wasn't there. But logistically, it's a whole lot easier to whistle up a thunderstorm and great big hailstones than it is to whistle up a meteor shower because the problem with a meteor shower is they've got to transit the atmosphere. I think God is very capable of doing that. But, you know, you, you have meteors that start off the size of footballs and they burn out before they hit the earth. I guess the way I would describe it is God doesn't do unnecessary miracles. Why do a meteor storm when a hailstorm will do? Well, that's sort of what I'm thinking. But I've heard other teachers say, wow, I mean, you've got these rocks that are in orbit around the sun, and he arranged for them all to start falling right there and hit these people. And that may be the case. I'm not disputing this guy's take on it, especially since he used hailstones in Egypt. And he says, all right, any stuff that you want to say, bring it in the side, because anything left out in the field, people, animals, anything else, is going to be destroyed by the hail. So God has a history of using hailstones to destroy livestock and people. So do with that as seems good to you. But the idea of economy of miracles, I'm going for hailstones, especially since it says hailstones in the second instance. So all the way to verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, son, stand still at Gideon and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, 
until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now again, remember they have marched all night. They have gone directly into battle. And they are now going into pursuit. And the pursuit that they're going to go on is 15 miles. So you're looking at a pursuit of 30 to 40 miles under combat conditions. So I got to tell you, I can imagine that these guys were pretty much worn out. And I would suggest that they were probably pretty much worn out by the time they entered the battle. Now, having said that, you all remember Jonathan when Saul says, anybody that eats until we've got all of our enemies is going to be put to death. Jonathan doesn't get the message and he's going along and he grabs a bite of honey and that revives him and Saul then is going to kill him and everybody says, wait, you know, you don't just kill your own son, especially since he just won the battle for you. I don't discount the ability of God to keep the soldiers of Israel energized. All I'm saying is in the natural, what they're doing here is tough to impossible. So 13 and a half. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry or set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So I am suggesting to you that there's not only something supernatural about the hailstones taking out the Amorites, or is probably also something supernatural about the Israelites being able to continue the battle for two days. I'm going to stop here because we've got a major chunk on the Amorite kings and so forth and conquest of southern Canaan, and we're not going to finish chapter 10. So let's go ahead and break there. We'll finish 10:15, and we'll pick it up at 10:16 next time. <laughs>